Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Um, I'm Hugh Osborne, and as always, I'm joined by Andrew Rushby and Hannah Wakeford. Well, in this in this episode of Exocast, we're going to be covering uh, two months worth of papers because, unfortunately, Hannah had uh, appendicitis a month ago, so we missed an entire entire month of news. But uh, hopefully, you're you're over that now, Hannah. Yes, I'm just missing an entire organ. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> we didn't need it anyway. It's good to have most yeah. of you back, Hannah. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get to keep it? Do no, they like... no, don't. Oh. I did see a picture of it though. Okay. Um, but I was pretty. I, loopy, I found that quite cute. So. <laughs> <laughs> Although you, you probably didn't. Eyes on it. Given it was causing you so much pain. Yeah. Well, well we're all good oh. now. Just some very scratchy scars that are healing. Oh. Um. Yeah. Ready so we to dive picked... into some exoplanet papers yeah so. let's dive in <laughs> so we've each picked a planet uh, a planet paper from the last two months um uh, i actually have picked two so i'm kind of cheating here <laughs> um More so i picked yeah so they were they were two papers in a series by the california legacy survey so one is a catalog of 177 planets from precision radial velocity mon- monitoring um over three decades and the other is an occurrence rate of giant planets beyond the ice line so um I guess first we should address the elephant in the author list with these papers. Yeah. <laughs> so when they were first posted on Archive, many people noticed that and were, you know, rightly shocked that uh, the name of a prominent sexual harasser in the field was uh, was was in the author list, so in part of the team. Uh, and I think many astronomers, especially kind of young scientists and women in the field, saw this as almost welcoming back into the fold somebody whose actions has, you know, done so much harm to a lot of a lot of scientists and, and driven a lot of people out of the field. Yeah. Um, and so giving somebody kind of authorship on a paper is almost giving them, you know, power and authority again. So um, so this prompted a lot of Twitter discussion about authorship and codes of conduct within consortia and, you know, some people claiming, you know, we need due process and things like this. But um, in the end, I think we all just want to make the field a kind of safer and more welcoming place, right, to everyone. And to do that, we means we have to take concrete action against harassers at all levels we can, and that includes in our own consortia. And you know, giving granting somebody authorship is almost giving them a form of credit, a form of honour that we have to exclude to people who don't deserve it. Um, so I don't think it's too much to insist that contributors meet like a bare minimum ethical standard to get on a paper, right? I don't know what you exactly. well said here. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you you said that really well. I think that there was adequate places in the acknowledgements for any kind of contribution like that, where you, you give minimum minimum validation to, to these people. And the main issue I took with it is that they, they still had affiliation from their previous university. They still had a solid support from that university where, where they were removed. And that is a sign from that, that, university uc berkeley that they don't care and i think that's the biggest problem um associated with this that there is still a huge weight and credit behind that even even though it just yeah and the the problem is that people hide behind that they say well uc berkeley didn't didn't have a didn't find you know didn't fire the guy whereas we all know you know we all believe 
everything, <laughs> everything that lots of female scientists have have said. So I think we, there's no reason to wait for UC Berkeley to make um, to make a decision. Like we we have the power within our own consortia to make decisions and make take action of our own accord. We right? have a mechanism for recognizing previous contributions to a field in the acknowledgements or recognizing a survey of data which was used. This is because there was a large data set that was used. That data set has been out in the public for many, 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 many years now. There is an acknowledgement section to acknowledge that these things were used for this scientific question we're trying to answer. That should not come with power and authority within the authorship list. That is that is my opinion, of course. You know, many people have very, very differing opinions, but... I think that it's important that we addressed it here and, and, and thank you, Hugh, for, for bringing that up and making such a clear statement on it. Agreed. Well, I mean, despite the fact that <laughs> a harasser was involved in the author list, the science itself is, you know, interesting enough to merit uh, talking. I think we can separate the two in, in some respect. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the science in these two, two papers. Um, so radial velocity searches like me, in fact, are entering their fourth decade of operation. So right. <laughs> Very clever. Not quite. Yeah. Um, and of course, so, so the first things we detected with RVs was hot Jupiters. So these were, you know, on short orbits where we could observe the full duration of, of one orbit, um, even even in a few months, right? Um, but now we're starting to be able to swap, you know, giant planets beyond the kind of 12-year period of Jupiter and even into the kind of 29-year period of, like, exosaturns. So we're now pushing way beyond, um, you know, in, out in, into the outer reaches of exoplanet systems where we can start finding gas giants. Um, and so the gas giants in our solar system all exist beyond what's known as the ice line. So this is effectively at the point where volatiles beginning with water but also you know eventually including methane and ammonia and, and other volatiles up like that um, these are basically far enough away from the heat of the star to condense as ice during the early phases and even even now this is where we find most of the icy um material in the solar system is out beyond the ice line you know in 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 uh, the moons around the gas giants um so this line in our solar system is drawn drawn at about three au um, and the fact that all our solar systems gas giants exist beyond this kind of point probably isn't just due to luck, right? There are theoretical reasons that having some of these sticky ice crystals around in the in the protoplanetary disk might spur giant planet formation and growth. Um, so the obvious question is basically how unique is this to our solar system? Um, you know, we know we don't have a hot Jupiter close in. Uh, or, or even you know a super Earth, and we're missing all of these these interesting things we f we find around exoplanets. Um, but maybe the position of our gas giants isn't weird. Maybe that is the normal kind of um, distribution in the universe. So to answer that, we need to know how common giant exoplanets are as you move out from their star. So how common they are at different distances. Um, so. This has kind of been started to be done already in, in the past. So there's direct imaging surveys with things like Sphere and, and GPI. These have been able to survey, survey nearby young stars and, and um, look for directly imaged kind of hot young gas giants, um, but only beyond 10 AU, so in the out, very outer reaches of the solar system, so not really close to that ice line at 3 AU. Um, while radial velocity searches have uh, so far only really been complete out to about 5 AU. So there's a bit of a gap in between these two. 
Um, but as radial velocity searches push outwards and direct imaging searches push inwards, these, you know, kind of maybe will meet at the, in the middle. Um, and now we have 30 years of, of RV data. This California Legacy Survey is kind of the first um, occurrence rate paper that's trying to fill in the gap between those two. Um, so, um, so there are some hints in the past that um, that maybe what we see is is a peak of gas giant planets at the ice line. So, a survey of giant star RVs with Keck suggested that planetary occurrence drops off after about three AU. Uh, Rachel Fernandez, using ten years of Harps and Coralie data, suggested also that there was a sharp fall off in, in, in giant occurrence rate beyond the ice line. Well, Wittenmeyer, using 18 years of uh, the Australian Anglo Telescope data, found a relatively constant occurrence rate between about 2 AU and 10 AU. So there's a bit of um, a bit of conflict between between these past papers. And the, the um, uncertainties are so large that there's no kind of uh, confidence in mm. this uh, distribution. So um, in Lee Rothenthal's first paper, what they did was they created a uniform sample of 719 stars, which had been observed by either Keck or Lick, um, real velocities, during the past 30 years, uh, but in these blind searches. So rather than focusing on planets which we know have, um, or on stars that we know have planets, or on specific types of stars where we think planets are more common, they only looked at these surveys where um, they picked, you know, 200 of the closest stars to do searches on or you know these these very kind of uniform selection of stars um and so their survey includes 163 known planets and they also were able to confirm 14 new ones um including two, five planets at beyond 10 au which is um you know showing how far we we're starting to push out in real velocities um, so on average, these stars had about 22-year baseline up to about you know 33, I think was the longest, and more than 70 radial velocities. So once they found the planetary signals, um, what they did was they did injection retrieval to basically figure out which planets would have been detected given a mass and a distance combination. Uh, so this produces what's known as completeness for each star. And if, you know, you might remember an elaborate fishing analogy we did back in Exoclass <laughs> 45C, where forget? we talked about occurrence rates. Uh, so, you know, if you want a bit more information about how you can figure out how many planets there are, then you can go back to to, to that episode. What a trawler is at the same time. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so basically, um, for a specific box in parameter space, in this case, mass and period, uh, using this completeness basically tells us how many planets we would expect to find, um, and compare that to how many we actually do find to tell us what the occurrence rate is. Um, so uh, it was B.J. Fulton's paper which which really um, computed these occurrences, and what they found is that twenty three percent of stars host giant planets. So one in one in four um, host planets greater than I think it was about thirty or fifty Earth masses. So so down to you know bigger than Neptune but smaller than Saturn, sort of sort of thing. And the occurrence rates of these clearly seem to de- decrease. Um, beyond the snow line, about 3 AU. Um, although the number of planets along distances is still kind of uncertain, so there's there's only a 3 sigma detection of this decrease beyond 3 AU, but it seems a lot stronger than, than past uh, measurements. Mm. And there's also a hint that the more massive exoplanets, so these like super Jupiters, be like much bigger than the mass of Jupiter, these may be formed through different mechanisms because these have a uniform uh, distribution. 
in in the solar system that was spread that was seen. Whereas the kind of Saturn and Jupiter sized planets have much much stronger uh, peak at three AU at the ice line. So maybe this is a, a um, kind of a core accretion versus gravitational instability um, like hint in the data. Um, maybe some and there's migration also, in there as well, confusing the picture. Yeah, I mean, it must be. I think what this kind of shows is actually migration of giant planets maybe doesn't occur as often as we might have thought given the hot Jupiters we found. Because hot Jupiters are only... We know we know that less than 1% of stars have hot Jupiters. Um, whereas 23% of stars seem to follow this trend of, like, ice giant ice line giant planets. So, Anna? Yeah, no, I'm just thinking from this about all of those directly imaged planets and how humongously massive they are. Well, still, yeah, but you know, they're they're much more massive than Jupiter is and they're much further out as well. So Yeah, so so one interesting thing that they did here was they compared the occurrence rate that was found by GPI mm. um, with what they expected. You have to kind of draw a different box in terms of your parameter space because the mass distribution is going to be different and the the orbital distance is going to be further. But mm. they remarkably they agree almost perfectly. Okay. The prediction from GPI and the the result here, um, the the graphs look identical. It's it's really it really does look like these two techniques have met in the middle in terms of the most massive giant planets. So that's that's, that's what really, we've all been really dreaming cool. of is just bringing these different methods of detecting and understanding these planets together. And you know we've got either this overlap between radial velocity and directly imaged now we've got to bring the transits in there and, and see what we can do like it's yeah so much and information we can get from just that overlap that comparison and i think it's it's a sign now with now these two um different techniques have met in the middle for giant planets all that's going to happen now is we're going to be pushing that down to smaller and smaller planets um so, so you know, I, this is probably well beyond this paper or, or what you might know, but if that overlap is is there between directly imaged and radial velocity, are there some radial velocity planets that can now be directly imaged? So there are two RV planets that will be observed by James Webb in 2021, Fantastic. which should be detected um, if if they're, you know, depending on the inclination and stuff. But um, yeah, so we will get there in... Well, actually, I think... No, hold on. This already been done. We talked about it two months ago. Beta Pic C was a radial velocity planet that which was imaged with gravity. Um, so yes, <laughs> it's kind of a different beast because it was a directly imaged planet that was found to have a companion uh, that was then yeah, directly imaged. The Beta Pic right. systems always like way out there on a limb when yeah. you talk about planetary systems. You go, and then there's Beta Pic. <laughs> um, and all of the stuff that's around it. So it's like maybe some more um, evolved systems, older systems, maybe. Um, yeah. So so these less... two that James Webb should should is going to go for mm-hmm. are older systems. So I think it's fifty one awesome. Airy and uh, eleven Idni or something like this. I can't remember the, the exact ones. Indy. Yeah. But yeah, that's a promising uh, promising uh, overlap between two different disparate techniques in terms of detection so so yeah so you mentioned this was the legacy survey Hugh is this going to be the the final say from this particular survey the final data release yeah good good question um I think at some point Keck is going to get a new um spectrometer 
so they'll upgrade the high res to a new a new version and they'll um retire high res and the problem is when you when you get a new spectrometer or even if you changed your old one you get an offset and you get different results between the old spectrum spectrograph and the new one so you need to build up a lot of data to be able to stitch those together so what might happen is we might not have for five ten years until we can build up the data to stitch them um we might not have a survey like this again but there's the harps has been going for what 25 26 years now and there are some surveys that 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 have you know not changed spectrograph in that time so i think that there's there's other other surveys that could come out from harps and coralie and things like that which would attack the same problem great thanks andrew why don't you kick us off with the next paper Sure. Well, well for going from observations to very much uh, a modelling theory type paper, um, I'm going to be talking about the effect of core formation on surface composition and planetary habitability. And this was a paper that was led by uh, Brandon Dyke uh, and others and was published in Apogee Letters recently. So um, I really like this paper. It was a fascinating synthesis of planetary formation. There was some geology in there, habitability. If you're listening to our previous episode discussing the implications of, of tectonics and, and habitability and atmospheric uh, and interior inter interactions, very, very timely and very relevant um, because understanding how planets evolve and how their tectonics evolve and what different modes they have, um, we think we're at the very early stage of understanding this is gonna have certainly an, an effect on habitability. What that effect is, we're still trying to figure out, um, but usually what we look at is water, and that's that's a big a big feature in, in this particular paper. So, uh, in differentiated in differentiated planets like like the Earth, that is planets that have an iron core overlaid by some rocky mantle and a crust, uh, the amount of melting that takes place and the productivity or the efficiency of that melting is controlled by how much iron is in the planet. Uh, and it's possible, geophysicists have been have been approximating this when we're thinking about exoplanets and, and other, uh, other planets in the solar system, using the planet's core mass fraction, or CMF. So in this paper, the authors show that using estimates of the core mass fraction allows for some other predictions to be made. Namely, we can think about the thickness, the composition, and the general mineralogy of the crust itself. Um, and if we have some predicted compositions, we can then start thinking about estimates of volatile recycling, how much water can get in and out of that crust, uh, as well as the, the stability of any surface and then atmospheric water reservoirs because of the importance of connecting those, those three elements, the atmosphere, the surface, surface uh, and the interior in this case. So we can determine if we know something about the thickness and the composition of the crust, the rate at which water is transported into the planetary interior, um, which we think is going gonna, is gonna to have to be important for maintaining habitable conditions and maybe not ending up uh, with a situation like Venus or maybe ending up like a situation like Venus. We just don't know yet. <laughs> and that's that's why we need to come at this from both an observational uh, side and sending, sending probes to Venus, for example, and thinking about this in, in the modeling context. Um, so back to the paper, uh, they think that planets with a larger core would then form a thinner crust, whereas those with a smaller core would have a, a thicker, iron-rich crust. Um, and again, we, we think, but we're not sure that the thinner crusts allow for the development of plate tectonics like we have here on Earth, um, which maintains this geochemical and, and volatile recycling mechanism and, and the different pathways that are important to keep gas from you know, getting into the atmosphere and then back into the, into the planet itself. 
um, as well as, as as water, keeping the, the crust and the interior hydrated. There's a, you know, we've, we've spoken about this on, uh, on the show in, in the past, the importance of hydrating the mantle, really. And, and we don't really know the effect of this. It can be detrimental, as there were some papers about the trappist systems, maybe having too much water that actually inhibited any tectonics. Um, and maybe not having enough might end up with a really brittle crust that doesn't allow for that movement. So understanding how water moves within the crust is, is going to be really important to understanding basically the atmosphere in interactions with, with the interior. Um, as well as, of course, which I, I go on about all the time, the carbonate silicate cycle, my favorite cycle of all. So I'm not going to bore us again about that. But again, very important. We it wouldn't operate without, you know, some sort of plate tectonics, most likely uh, returning that material into the interior of the planet. So we think that thicker crust will then inhibit those formation of the plates, um, although we might get another mode of tectonics, something like a stagnant lid where you have these thick brittle crusts that um, basically pressure builds up at a certain point, weakness in that crust and uh, basically just explodes. And it's a very explosive, probably not a very efficient mechanism uh, of, of, of returning materials to the, to the surface, but it doesn't really allow for anything to get back in. It's not really a recycling mechanism, it's more just a release <laughs> a mechanism, I guess, um, which you know, is, is going to be very important for understanding what's going on on the surface and the interior, of course. So Earth's core mass fraction is around 32.5%, um, and the paper demonstrates that planets with a similar or larger fraction um, seem to have a thinner crust, and that those are actually less efficient at transporting water and other volatiles into the mantle, which actually maintains that relatively sizable water or, or volatile reservoir on the surface. So we want it to be less efficient if we want to keep water on the surface. If it was incredibly efficient, all of it would be in the, in the, in, in the mantle. Now, again, we don't know what the hydration will do, if it will actually change the mode of tectonics um, to allow for more plates to move, or if it will inhibit it. Um, but we think that based on the core mass fraction alone, that will tell us something about how the crusts might be um, taking in water, if at all. So terrestrial plants with then a smaller core mass fraction on the order of around 24%, I think the paper noted, um, but with a higher mantle iron content, maybe something similar to, to Mars and our solar system, tend to form much thicker crusts that are more efficient at stabilizing water-rich rocks, thereby keeping the volatiles in the interior and removing it from the surface. So you're not going to have that surface water reservoir, you might have it mainly uh, inside the planet itself. With less water on the surface, then these planets may well be less conducive to supporting a water-dependent biosphere, of course, uh, on the surface anyway. Uh, and this could give us potentially some insights into what happened to, to Mars's water if it did indeed follow this track. It had this very thick um, thick crust that was much more efficient at keeping the, the water inside the planetary interior. So regular listeners will remember Hugh's paper from last episode um, on the chemical link between stars and their planets. I think that was Adebaken et al., Hugh? Um, and they demonstrated there uh, that in general, the ratio of iron to silicate in the host star can then inform our estimates of the core mass fraction of orbiting terrestrial planets. So if we put that paper and this paper together, we can start getting quite a lot of uh, info or at least starting to make some predictions about the planets themselves. You know, this work notes that what differentiates the planet is how much iron is in the core and how much is in the mantle. And this can also give us some insights into the, the fate of the planet's um, water reservoirs that we've already touched on here. So couple that with some JWST observations, it will hopefully be possible to determine the chemical properties of planet-hosting stars. And then using this work, it suggests that we can use those uh, 
um, iron-silicate ratio of the star to determine the stability of volatiles on the surface of small rocky worlds in their orbit, which I think is really cool. So we're going all the way from the star to potentially, you know, water reservoirs on the surface of the planet. So it's a big leap. There's going to be a lot of uncertainties and, you know, this will obviously be informed by uh, more modelling and observations as we go. But I think it would be a really invaluable step towards better understanding of, you know, planetary habitability, comparing planets and extending that chemical link between stars and their, their planets as well. A cool paper. Yeah. Can we use our solar system planets to kind of probe this and understand it? Because Mercury has a huge iron core compared yeah. to the Earth. Or does it have to be within that habitable zone for this to be a valid kind of question within the simulations? That's a very good question. I think actually it didn't the Adebiakin paper, Hugh, have a, have a pretty secular link between... Uh, you know, yeah. The solar system was actually pretty much in line with that. Yeah. Uh, but I think I think the question is more about well I don't know if you're talking about the prediction of the crust thickness Hannah which I it, yeah I don't know yeah there, there must be a distance issue here right if we're talking about the yeah. stability of water itself it can't well be beyond the ice line and it probably can't be yeah. as close as mercury so given given that that range of planets that might be forming within this you know terrestrial habitable zone region around you know a main a main sequence star those are probably the bounding bounding limits yeah you're right it sounds like quite a jump just from a single measurement of the size of the the core, you can predict the crust thickness. But oh, I mean, absolutely. it makes sense how you've explained <laughs> it. But I just wonder if there's other, if in a very generalized system, that's true. But there's mm. other things probably that's going on that that throw that out the window Without in some ways. You know, like magnetic fields and and just slight differences in composition, or you know, even even as we talked about for Venus in the last episode, you know, the fact that it. It lost its water, probably changed what the tectonics were doing, right? And, and changed, you know, there's probably an interplay with the what's on the surface and what the atmosphere is doing compared to what the tectonics is doing as well. So absolutely, and, and you, the interactions even in the in the protoplanetary disk with any gases that would be happening there, surface magma. You're totally right, um, but yeah. it's almost like going to Venus might answer some more of these questions, right? And even <laughs> give us more uh, confidence in this in this kind of prediction. Um, or less confidence. Um, and either way, uh, a Venus mission would, would help us to answer some of these things. It's almost like I chose this, even though I ha- might have seen this last <laughs> month. Uh, it just seems to have come, come around at a very timely you, you uh, moment. M- did you have prior knowledge of which Venus or which missions were I wish I could say yes. So no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> certainly not of the ESA one, which did take me by surprise when Hannah dropped that into our group chat. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, another mission. Did I miss this? What, yeah. What's happened here? Yep. So come on, ESA, up your game. Up your marketing game and, and you know, jump, jump NASA. You made these decisions first. We want to hear about them yeah. first. Right. Tell us. Tell us, and then tell us what your mission's going to do. Don't don't give it to NASA to explain what your ESA <laughs> mission is going to do. I'd like to formally ah, invite whole other any problem. individuals from ESA to come on the show. Come on here. Let's let's get exclusives. We we all you know we can we can have a good chat about it, and we can get it out there nice and early to beat to beat NASA. Uh, no, we're all in this together and we're all trying to answer the same questions. Let's not let's not talk about that. And uh, let's talk about Hannah's paper instead. Hannah, what have you found um, when, from your hospital bed as you were reading papers, I'm sure? Yeah. <laughs> so there's been a lot of exoplanet transmission spectral papers in the last couple of months, including some interesting ones from large surveys, like the Access Survey, the Large Beast Survey, which still has the best name, uh, the Panset Survey. And so I encourage all of our listeners that are, are interested in that to go look for those, because there's been a lot of really interesting ones. But I actually chose something that is again, located within our solar system using a mission where we actually were able to throw it at the planet. 
Uh, and this is a paper which is titled A Diffuse Core in Saturn Revealed by Ring Seismology. So the reason I picked this paper is because it's just a really fascinating way of being able to measure and understand the interior of a planet where it's very, very much difficult for us to get to. So the interior of Saturn is under huge pressure. Even if we stuck a probe through the atmosphere, which we have done, we can't get there to be able to measure it directly. So we have to infer it from different measurements. So in this paper, the authors use data from stellar occultation studies of Saturn's rings from the Cassini spacecraft to determine that the core of Saturn is not discreetly layered like our own, but is diffuse, like you'd get in, in a boundary between liquids of two different densities. So think of a tequila sunrise. And I, I've written down here, think of, if you don't drink alcohol, think of a virgin tequila sunrise, because I couldn't <laughs> think of a non-alcoholic drink that has these two very nice densities that you can see. Maybe an icy lemonade where the water's already melted. The Some ice sort of is coffee melted. drink, perhaps? Or maybe, yeah, like yeah. a latte that you haven't mixed in properly or something. Mm. Yeah, that's a much better... <laughs> My mind was stuck on the tequila sunrise because the colors are very much satin colors to me. So I'll go with that one. Um, so the, a core structure like this has actually been proposed already for Jupiter and measurements from Juno are going to help reveal that even more. Measurements of the, the gravity structure of, of Jupiter will help us understand whether or not Jupiter does in fact have this diffuse core that we think it does. Um, but this hadn't been done for Saturn. We didn't know. We don't know what the core of these giant planets are. So how have they managed to do this and pull this information out of the Cassini mission, which actually ended in 2007? So Cassini was a peppy little spacecraft that could. It was out there orbiting Saturn for 13 years. It did an amazing amount of information collection and Scientists are still chugging through that data, and this is one of the things that they're chugging through to try and understand more and more and more. And the spacecraft itself regularly watched as the planet and the rings blocked out light from distant stars. This is a method called stellar occultation. And during this, the change in the distant star's light can tell you about the structure and composition of the very edge of the planet's atmosphere or the rings themselves. Now, Saturn has seven named ring regions, but within each of those named regions, which are, are letters of the alphabet, there are perhaps hundreds of other discrete rings where the particles kind of follow these, these paths with gaps between them. Some of them just a few meters apart from each other, but a distinct gap of no material nonetheless. So from these stellar occultation measurements, you can determine the layout of those rings, how many gaps they are, how thick those gaps are, uh, what size material is in there. And those measurements, you can determine any changes with time as well. So you've made lots and lots of different measurements of the structure of these rings. How are, how are those gaps changing with time? How is the thickness of those very small bits of the ring changing with time? And it's this change that is really important for this study. Instead of having to measure the global gravitational pull of the planet at different points, like Juno is doing for Jupiter and like uh, Veritas will be doing for Venus, that measurement for Saturn is actually disrupted and, and noisy because of the internal dynamics of the planet itself. And that adds noise to the data, which means that you can't get an accurate measurement on the gravity itself. So that makes it really difficult. 
And those, those kind of waves, those harmonic waves, the ringing of a bell, like structure of a planet due to this, this, this fluctuations can tell you the structure, but on Saturn, because of the way the material in the planet is churning, it means that that's very, very difficult. So what they did is they looked at how the distance, the gaps of these rings was changing with time. And in that motion is these waves, these frequencies, which added information to those gravity measurements. And that added information allowed them to disentangle the interior dynamics of the planet from the actual structure of the core. So it was able to take out that noise. It was able to compensate for it with new measurements of how these rings were moving backwards and forwards due to the, the change in the gravitational pull of the planet. So this, this nice movement of the, the rings themselves that we can't really do for any other planet, even though the other giants have rings, Saturn's rings are far more extensive than any of the other giant planet's rings. They're also much closer to the planet than a lot of the other giant planet rings, which means that you can they can be really much more sensitive to these pushes and pulls. So think of the radial velocities that he was talking about. The closer the planet is, the easier it is for us to measure that push and pull, the change. And that's the same here. So they were looking very specifically at the C ring, which is a faint set of rings on the inner part of Saturn's ring disk. And combining that together, they were able to determine, they were able to show from the data that there is a stable, diffuse, stratified core envelope transition from the inner region of Saturn, which actually extends to about 60% of the planet's radius and contains around 17 Earth masses of ice and rock. So this is really fascinating information about the interior structure of these giants because that speaks back to the formation. So the gradual distribution of the heavy elements, that that mixing process in Saturn is going to reflect some of the primordial structure and the history of material falling into the planet that we couldn't get at any other way. So the results from Saturn kind of tend towards the results that we're seeing from Jupiter as well, that these giant planets have this diffuse core. And unlike kind of the static measurements of this gravity field that you get from for Jupiter and that we'll get for, for Venus, the seismology of the rings, so the, the, the motion of those rings, is able to probe the stability of that liquid as well, so that, that, that boundary region. And this measurement that they've made actually requires Saturn's interior to be completely convectively stable over half of that radius. And that, that is a kind of fundamental departure from previously published interior models which are just constrained from that gravity field alone. So the seismology data from the rings has really added to our understanding of the interior structure of this planet. Now, I will I will end by saying that this paper is incredibly cool, but it is not for the faint-hearted. It is dense. It is data-rich. I did not understand a single figure. There are no nice diagrams showing you a cut-through of the planet or Cassini images of the rings. So if that's what you want, uh, don't go here. But it is certainly a breakthrough in terms of measurements, not just for Saturn, but also helping us understand the internal workings of these giants. Do they have this solid, you know, rock core, or is there a mixing element in them that 
can help us understand more of what we're seeing in terms of the dynamics higher up in the atmospheres. And that really will speak to exoplanets as well. We have this big question for exoplanets. We have this big question for formation processes. Do you need a 20 mass of Earth to come together as a rock before you start getting this hydrogen helium atmosphere? Or is there some boundary in between? And that's some of the questions that we're trying to answer from our own giants. Uh, and this is going a very, very long way to doing that. Well, who needs to read yeah, that paper? Really we have such a great summary uh, from you, Hannah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I got it all. It was a lot in there, considering okay. uh, this is actually going to be published in Nature Astronomy. So I was hoping for a, a nice kind of easy read. Uh, and I was just then much, much external reading required to, to fully understand what was going on. So I imagine one of the reasons we don't have such a good gravity field me measurement from Cassini is because the rings make it difficult to do tight like orbital passes of Saturn. So in some ways it's quite funny because it it's the rings which gave us this information, right? So without so the rings we wouldn't have got <laughs> such a good measurement. It's a, that's a very good point for for a majority of Cassini's life around Saturn. It didn't it didn't go anywhere near the interior of those rings. In the last two years of its uh, life around Saturn before it did its grand finale plunge into the atmosphere, which gave us some information on the very upper reaches of the atmosphere. It did a huge number of loops interior to the rings. And a lot of the oh, gravity right. data comes from those interior loops that it did as it was getting closer and closer to the planet. But you can imagine you've got the spacecraft orbiting Saturn trying to avoid those rings, yeah. taking pictures of the nice moons and moonlets within those rings constantly, and then needing to kind of jump through that big gap and then go through the middle of them, avoiding all of this nice ring space in the middle. So there's two different orbits that they did with Cassini, one interior to the rings and one exterior to the rings. And once you go inside, you're not getting out very easily. So. Right. <laughs> I could spend a whole episode just talking about Cassini because it's just amazing. But we'll leave that for future episodes where I'm able to talk about all those three Venus missions we covered in, in Exocast 52B. Exocast. Okay, thanks team. That was a good rundown of the uh, the most uh, of some of the most exciting exoplanetary uh, news out there for the last few months. And don't forget to look out for our other episode this month where we ask the question, why is Venus important for exoplanets? And, and chat about um, the, the recent NASA and ESA missions to our next door neighbour. You can also get in touch with us to let us know your thoughts on the show at exo underscore cast on Twitter. Uh, you can find all our episodes on our website, exocast.org, uh, on iTunes, Spotify and all good, good podcasting apps. Plus, you can now buy merch at our Threadless store, that's exocast.threadless.com. Uh, or if you just want to help us cover our web server costs, you can contribute a few dollars at buymeacoffee.com forward slash exocast. But for now, thanks very much for listening. See you next time. Bye. 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 Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford is a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne is the Tess Kaops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby is a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear. You can find more information on exocast.org.